You are about to listen to Defending Black Girlhood Podcast, and I'm your host, Lalita G. I'm a black mother. Look, I don't care what Mookie Mae Mae and Lakeisha oh, Mama does. I'm not Mookie Mae Mae and Lakeisha's uh, Mama. Tripping. A preacher. Give me the key of D. And Mary had a little baby, and his name was Jesus. A life coach. Look, girl, if Chump don't want no help, Chump don't get no help. Oh, and a singer. And I, and I, and I, no, I ain't a singer. Most of all, I'm an advocate for black girls everywhere they are. And I'm telling you right now, I am unapologetic as hell about my fierce advocacy for black girls to be safe in their homes, schools, and communities. Join us for courageous conversations about topics that most impact our girls and be inspired to do your part in defending black girls in your part of the world. Some information may contain graphic, violent, or explicit language. Listener's discretion is advised. I was placed in a cell with a young woman called Miss Vesta Simpson. After I was placed in the cell, I began to hear sounds of licks and screams. I could hear the sounds of licks and horrible screams. And I could hear somebody say, can you say yes, sir, nigga? Can you say yes, sir? And they would say other horrible names. She would say, yes, I can say yes, sir. So I said, she said, I don't know you well enough. They beat her, I don't know how long. And after a while, she began to pray and ask God to have mercy on those people. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrolman. And he asked me where I was from. And I told him, Louisville. He said, we are going to check this. And they left my cell, and it wasn't too long before they came back. He said, you're from Louisville, all right, and he used a curse word. And he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. I was carried out of that cell into another cell where they had two Negro prisoners. The state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro to take the blackjack. The first Negro prisoner ordered me my orders from the state highway patrolman for me to lay down on a bunk bed on my face. And I laid on my face, the first Negro began to beat. And I was beat by the first Negro until he was exhausted. I was holding my hands behind me at that time on the left side because I suffered from polio when I was six years old. After the first Negro had beat until he was exhausted, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. The second Negro began to beat and I began to work my feet. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro had beat to sit on my feet, to keep me from working my feet. I began to scream and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress, I pulled my dress down, and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Matthew Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to speak with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Thank you. Those powerful words that you just 
heard were the testimony of Fannie Lou Hamer at the Democratic National Convention, August 22nd, 1964. Our topic today is Black Women at the Forefront of the Civil Rights Movement. I'll be taking a look at my top 10 heroines of the Civil Rights Movement in honor of the very first day of Black History Month. And joining me in the studio today is longtime Madison resident activist Brandi Grayson. Brandi is the co-founder of Young, Gifted, and Black, but she is not new to community activism. She began her activism down the street from here at the UW-Madison via Black Student Union and Student Government. She co-founded Young, Gifted, and Black as a way to express her continued activism. Welcome, Brandy. Thank you for having me. Before I start my list, I wanted to start off by saying that many of the women that are um, on this list, I didn't learn about any of them in the Madison Metropolitan School District, from which I went from kindergarten all the way through. And these stories about these women and other civil rights activists were not discussed at the dinner table at my soul food dinners in my family. You know, I would try to engage my grandmother around conversations of what it was like growing up in the deep South when she was younger. And she really kind of shied away from those conversations. And it wasn't until I was much older that I understood that many people in my mother, my grandmother's generation really wanted to leave those painful stories in the past, that they were very difficult to talk about, difficult to remember, difficult to engage in. And it really wasn't until I started attending the university here in Madison and started taking African-American studies um, and that I really started learning about some of these powerful figures myself. And so any information that I know about these women started on campus and then on my own journey along the way. So I encourage you to write down the names of these women on my top 10 list, and Brandy will be sharing some of her favorites as well, and do your own further research to familiarize yourself with these women um, because they they are powerful, they are awesome, and their stories are very, very deep. So I'm going to start off with my number one, and we're going to do this kind of like um, the talk show host, uh, David Letterman. So I'm going to build up to my number 10 as my ultimate woman. But I'm going to start off with Dorothy Height. And I'm going to read a quote by Dorothy. Um, first, let me just say she was discussing with some of the male leadership who were organizing the 1963 March on Washington. And she asked a question because she was concerned that there was not representation of black women. And um, this is kind of what she got back. She said, it was thought that we're making a lot of fuss about an insignificant issue that we didn't recognize that the march was about racism and not about sexism. We wanted to hear at least one woman in the march dealing with jobs and freedom. We knew most civil rights organizations were largely comprised of women, children, and youth. And as she talked to the leadership, and namely Baynard Rustin, he told her, well, we have Mahalia Jackson. And we know that Mahalia Jackson was a powerful singer, but she was not necessarily a civil rights activist. And so um, there was this start from the beginning, wanting to have the voice heard. And so, Brandy, I have a question for you. Uh-huh. Um, as we look at the civil rights, and even if you knew nothing about it, if you read no books, if you just looked at a number of photographs from the civil rights movement, you would see that um, just by the pictures, women, old women, young women, um, teenagers who were at the forefront when the, when the dogs were being released, when the water was being um, shot at the people, it was mostly women and mm -hmm. children and youth. So do you think we would have had the civil rights movement as it were if it were not for the powerful influence of the black women? Um, I would say no. Um, and, and, and basically because what we know from um, stories from the civil rights movement is that women were the backbone of the civil rights movement and so were queer people and so were trans people. But because of the way that white supremacy, patriarchal capitalism functions, in order for us to um, be heard or seen or accepted as a legit movement, then you have to put men out front. And we can still see that 
legacy and residue um, in the current movement and conversations and the and the and even locally, you can see how men are always called on to be the ones to explain or give their opinion. Um, when we know um, just for for being a part of organizing and different organizations that women are doing the work, but we we are very very seldom called to provide an analysis um, about the work. So. And we know that black women, like if you've seen the movie Hidden Figures, it's like, whoa, Mm -hmm. these women are amazing. They're geniuses. Um, But yet, if that movie hadn't come out, I myself didn't even know the contributions and how many of those stories go untold. Right. And I think there's a lot of hidden stories. And Mm -hmm. I was saying, I made a post about how... You know, we're celebrating it, Mm -hmm. but really how many hidden stories are there Mm -hmm. about black women who have done amazing things um, in American society to push us all forward? So um, and speaking of that, so let me bring this in. Last week I was talking about the Women's March Mm -hmm. and I had made some comments about the fact of the the pink pea hats and that mine was not pink. And so I got some feedback about that from a listener who um I'm sure you did <laughs> <laughs> who um wanted to correct me that <laughs> the fact that the pink pea hats I'm not going to say the word cuz again I don't believe that we need to desensitize the word cuz that doesn't move the movement forward for what I'm trying to do mm-hmm. in my community but she wanted to tell you about your pea though she wanted to tell me about my pea <laughs> and that um the pink pink pea hats were for all of us and I shouldn't be offended by the fact that it was pink and it wasn't purposely to exclude my brown one. And this is the thing, right? This is the thing about, and I'm always going to refer to this phrase that was token, uh, token created by bell hooks, which is white supremacy, patriarchal capitalism. Well, well, that's a mouthful. I know, but to correct myself, she switched up the words as her phrase is white supremacy, capitalistic patriarchy. And I just switched them up. But um, anyway, what, what that means basically is that white supremacy is always the, the, is always in action, right? So you are expressing yourself as a black woman and you are saying this hat did not represent you as a black woman or your body parts. And a white woman sends you a letter, detailed letter, took the time to type it up to tell you that your, your explanation for your pee is not um, acceptable, that you should feel included in their pee. Right. Right. And, and that's the thing about white supremacy, patriarchal capitalism it it go is so insidious that you you don't even notice unless you pay attention. So it is racist for a white woman to tell a black woman about her body parts and to correct you. If I say to someone, my experience as a black woman experientially is A, and then you come back and say, no, your experience isn't, it's B. And you're outside of my experience because you're white and you can never experience my experience experientially. You can conceptualize it, but you can never experience it experientially what gives you the authority and um, entitlement to correct me in my existence and in, in, in my world? And I'm explaining what gives you authority, your whiteness. And they don't even see it because whiteness is this acceptance of um, cultural norm is where we start off judging people and anything below or above is considered abnormal and unacceptable. So the fact that you said your pee didn't look like that was unacceptable um, to this white woman who pee looked just like her hat. And you should feel like you are included because you just have a pee. And so I think whether it's the civil rights movement, whether mm-hmm. it's the feminist movement, mm-hmm. we always, as black women, seem to be fighting for the opportunity to have our voice and our own definition about what's important to us. And mm-hmm. so case in point, I was giving a, a workshop up north. And I was talking about um, up north, up north, which and I and I don't drive up north at night, so I made it a two stop decision. Yes, yes, I go only as far as Eau Claire at night, and so I'm up north, and I'm talking about. We start talking about the feminist movement, mm-hmm. and this this young white lady told me, "Well, how did I feel?" And I said, "I didn't feel like the feminist movement included me as a black woman in the issues that were important to me." And she basically said to me that, um, well, how, why not? Because the same things about your 
did she say my cervix or <laughs> what did she say? So she, hers was uh, uh, her her statement was about reproductive it was about organs, re- right? And okay. she said, "Well, yours is the same as mine." Mm-hmm. And I told her, I said that may be, but you're assuming that I want the same thing for my body parts and reproduction that you want for yours, mm-hmm. and that I have no right to speak to it. I don't know why do. People keep wanting to talk about my body part. <laughs> tell me what I want for my body part. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure it out. And folks try to tell me what I want for it. So it's always this, this struggle around finding a voice mm-hmm. in these movements um, for us. And so um, you also, we are Facebook friends. Yes. And so I was nursing um, a migraine this weekend and then I got on Facebook and I saw you talking about the community forum. Mm-hmm. And can you share a little bit with us about, again, about the black woman's voice with that? Yeah, I was, I was a little um, taken back, you know, um, because, and I watched the community forum live and I thank Haywood for a feminine um, live um, on his Facebook and I'm watching it and I'm listening and you, you hear the mayor, you hear the sheriff, you hear different representatives from the city. Um, and you, and you see Latino women, you see Muslim women, you see black men. I saw about four black men, but you do not see a black woman mm-hmm. on any of the panels. No black woman. And this is a community forum um, about um, the legalities of Trump's order um, as it relates to the Im- immigrants, um, mm-hmm. rounding up the immigrants or what have you. And I was just taken aback. Like, how is it that we, A, we don't discuss or include black women perspective in a community forum that is supposed to be inclusive, right? Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be inclusive and um, have lots of diversity. And we, what we know is black women are the um, parents of most black children, right? We right. had the homes. We're right. most of us are single parents. And how could we not be included in this discussion? And another thing that was interesting to me is that we did not discuss the building of a hundred and sixty million dollar jail that's ready to go up. And they're like increasing a solitary confinement by three three folds. They're increasing juvenile sales for our children inside the adult jails. We're not discussing it. And we know from the perspective of the black community that is going to impact us disproportionately, right? Because we know that 50% of that jail at any time is filled with our black bodies. Yes, we only make up 5% of the population. Mm -hmm. However, we make up 50% of the population in that jail. And what that tells us by definition is that we have an issue with uh, structural institutional racism happening as these officers are patrolling our neighborhoods or patrolling our schools or are in our schools leading to our children being placed in these jail cells. And we also know disproportionately our black bodies are held in solitary confinement, which we also know exacerbates mental wellness challenges and causes it. Right. Right. So anyway, I say all that to say we're talking about legalities of this executive order and we're listening to enforcers of this executive order. When I say enforcers, I'm speaking specifically to Madison Police Department, Dane County Sheriff Department. These are the folks that the state will call down to enforce this executive order. And we're hearing the sheriffs say, why can't we get back to our American values of taking care of one another, loving one another, and doing these amazing things? And I was just blown away because I'm like, wait a minute, American values started um, with the, the brutalization, the rape, and like some demonic insidious stuff to black bodies, red bodies, and you want to go back to the American values. So let me ask you this. How do you think that conversation might have been changed if there had been a black woman on the dais? Well, I think it would have depended on what black woman, right? Because what we do know is that all kin folks... All skin folk ain't your kin folk, right? And we wow. also know that this particular meeting was organized by black women. So how did two black women that sit on a city council forget their own voices? We do have a caller that's coming in, Sarah, who has a comment about Fannie Lou Hamer. Yes. Hi, Sarah. I, do. I um thank you for the program. Oh, thank I you. heard uh, I heard the um voice of Fannie Lou earlier in the program, Yes, and I just wanted to say that I knew her from about 1968 until she died in 1977 of oh breast cancer, which was never, you know, taken care of. She, she um, was then organizing Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and helping, you know, helping. 
and the Mississippi Farm Cooperative. And she was my hero. Wow. And another one of my favorites is Angela Davis. Yes. I heard her speak here many years ago. She's also one of my heroes. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Sarah, thank you so much for listening and thank you for the call. Yes, yes, yes. Two of my heroes. We're going to be talking about Dr. Angela Davis a little bit later. And so it's interesting as we are talking historically, again, Mm -hmm. it is Black History Month, and I still call it Black History Month. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You go back and forth, back and forth from kind of the the historical issues that we still see reflected. So I can tell already. I'm not going to get through this list, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm going to try to read through them quickly and then make sure that we have time for conversation. So my number two is Mary McLeod Bethune, and she was an educator and activist, most known for the Mary McLeod Bethune College. And Mm -hmm. one of her comments was the drums of Africa still beat in my heart. They will not let me rest while there Mm -hmm. is a single Negro boy or girl without a chance to prove his worth. Powerful, powerful words. Um, Brandy, are we still as black women fighting for the chance for our black boys and our black girls to prove their worth? Lord have mercy. I think some days I feel like we're the only ones fighting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Some days I feel like just like the, the community form, like how could our black children not be brought up by our black men? Cause again, there were black men present. There were black Mm -hmm. men present with children, but somehow their, their, our challenges in Madison community was missed. And somehow the fact that these executive orders that are coming down will disproportionately impact black bodies. Sometimes people forget that immigrants are black. And sometimes people forget that some of the countries that he's banned are black, predominantly black countries. Yeah, so try being black and Muslim. Exactly. So now you have this intersectionality, right? This right. added layer of... um. <laughs> I don't know what to call it, but this added layer that's going to add to mm-hmm. black Muslims being targeted by this executive order. Mm-hmm. And it just saddens me that we have to fight for people to see our humanity um, and people are unable to understand what it means to be not seen and not to have our existence even confirmed or validated or even included in the conversation. Just like the, the lady who sent you the letter about your pee. Like my existence, I matter, whether you realize it or not, or no matter how you've been socially conditioned to see me as a black woman, I matter. You matter. Your pee matters. My brown pee. That's right. Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you got to laugh to keep from crying. Okay. Number three, Ida B. Wells was a journalist and we know she was most known for being an activist against lynching, Mm -hmm. which what a brave thing for a woman to take on. I love this quote in light of, and I'll I'll mention that the miscegenation laws of the South only operate against the the legitimate union of the races. They leave the white man free to seduce all the colored girls he can, but it is deaf to the colored man who yields to the force and advances of a similar attraction in white women. White men lynch the offending black man, not because he is a despoiler of virtue, but because he succumbed to the smiles of the white women. Now, let's listen to that, take in that quote from Ida B. Wells, and let's juxtapose that to the fact that the woman who accused Emmett Till of flirting Mm. with her is now coming out and saying that she lied. And Mm -hmm. that lie was the death sentence of this young 14 year old boy. Brutal death, right? We saw the pictures. Brutal. Brutal. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so, um, again, we see that the, the past is still with us as we try to move forward. These issues still continue to come up. And I wish, I'm not really sure what the reason for her coming forward, if she feels like she's going to she die soon <laughs> and she wants to clear her conscience. <laughs> but I wish she would have just kept that to herself. I know, right? Number four, Claudette Colvin. And many of us don't know this young lady, and I have to tell you of my own ignorance that it was about three years ago that I went down to the Civil Rights Museum and I saw this display about this woman. I was like, well, who is she? (laughs) And I read about her, and I was just taken aback that she is the first person who started off the bus boycott, Mm -hmm. but because she was a young, black, like, 15-year-old girl who later became a, a teen mom, 
it was said they didn't want her to be the face of the civil rights movement. This is a quote by her. Back then as a teenager, I kept thinking, why don't the adults around here just say something? Say it so they know we don't accept segregation. I knew then and I know now that when it comes to justice, there is no easy way to get it. You can't sugarcoat it. You have to take a stand and say, this is not right. And I did. And so with Young, Gifted, and Black, I know you all have engaged a lot of young folks. Mm -hmm. So how important is it that we create a platform for our young folks in the modern day activism? It's extremely important, right? Because what we know is that um, the the old school way of doing things um, may not necessarily fit what we need today, right? Because mm-hmm. we are in the, the, the age of the informational age. So how we communicate, how we perceive each other is different from back then, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's important that we actually hand the torch off to our children, right? Right. The baton. And that's one of the things that was lacking as a result of, um, the FBI and the COINTELPRO and COINTELPRO, you guys should look up C O I N T E L PRO P R O, which is a federal agency set up to decimate black leadership, right? Mm-hmm. To destroy black leadership. I mean, it was very strategic and very intentional. So what we have in our black, um, in our history and our story is this gap between leadership. There was no one to hand the baton back to because all of our black leaders were arrested, right? Mm-hmm. And sent in prison. We still have some in prison that's been there for 40, 60 years. We have Asada Shakur who's exiled to um, Cuba and still on the FBI list mm-hmm. as the worst, you know, the highest paint, you know, they, they, our, our black president increased the bounding over her head. You know what I mean? So there's some things that we have to think about as we, um, gather new information. Um, but what we have in history in our story is this gap. So we have in the sixties and the seventies, all the way from early, the late 1800s, we were organizing, building infrastructures, developing our own things, our own, our own schools, our own uh, our own uh, neighborhoods, like we were really putting in our the own work, our own businesses. We were we were very yes. um, active in politics. Yes, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. We go from Marcus Garvey move, movement all the way to the civil rights movement, and each and every time, white agencies were put in place to kill us, literally kill us and lock us up. So at 1980, so we have all of our leaders decimated, destroyed, murdered, from Malcolm to Martin, right? And then 80s to 90s, we have. The, the war on drugs, don't we? Mm-hmm. We have this era in which all these drugs are put into our neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. And by our government, right? To save our economy. And then they go and say, we have a problem. Let's get the people standing on these corners that are selling these mm-hmm. drugs, right? But we are not talking about the folks who are bringing over the cargo over mm-hmm. our ocean, right? Or in the planes, because right. we can't afford all that. Because Tyrone right? does not have a plane. <laughs> Tyrone is only making right. this this a little pocket bit of nothing. Right. But th- can we go back just for mm-hmm. a quick second? Sure. And I don't want to get stuck here because it's a whole show. Yeah. But there always seems to be a push mm-hmm. by the greater white community yes. to identify who our black leaders yes. are. And to identify them to, for themselves. To name them. Yes. For them to name who our black leaders are. And mm-hmm. I think, and to get a list of who our black leaders <laughs> are. And I always feel a little some kind of way about that, mm-hmm. especially when you look historically, yes. that when we knew who the leaders were, when they were out front and up front, well, they got picked off yep. one by one. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, I just feel some kind of way about it. Absolutely. And you should, because my experience, and this is why I personally had to step back from Young, Gifted, and Black Coalition, is because I was the face of it, right? And not that it was the intention of the folks that were part of the coalition for me to be the face. It just, I just became the face, right? I became the point person, not just by media, but by other Black people, right? And we had tons of people that were doing the work, um, but I became the face. And as a result, I got harassed by Madison police. You know, they sat outside my house. And this is right after Sandra Bland was murdered, you know. And I have a house full of children, young women. I am a treatment foster care mother. I just had a, a baby who's seven months old, my first son. Amen. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of risk to this, especially when we mm-hmm. don't have the appropriate infrastructure to protect ourselves right. and other folks. Right, right. Okay, so Ella Banker, number five. <laughs> um, 
I'm just getting to know this sister, and she was amazing because her activism spanned from like the 1930s really into her death, mm. starting with the NAACP. She was part of the civil rights movement. She, um, in 1972, she traveled the country in support of the Free Angela movement. She spoke out against um, apartheid. She spoke up for the Puerto Rican independence. This girl was busy. And what is sobering to me is this 1964 quote until the killing of black men black mother's sons become as important to the rest of the country as the killing of a white mother's sons we will believe in freedom we who believe in freedom cannot rest until this happens um she made this quote almost 55 years ago and we find ourselves still at that point yes Yes, we do. And it looks different, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of us, and this is a sad thing about not having um, black people not being organized and then our organization and our, and us, like our leaderships and our, our organizations that were doing the work and educating us through teachings and freedom schools were decimated, right? The last mm -hmm. bombing we know that was towards a black organization was 1985 in Philadelphia, the move. They straight bombed them. They had a, 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 a whole... Uh, complex and uh, system of infrastructure for taking care of themselves and educating other black people, and they were bombed. So what does that tell us? That we should fear organizing. We should fear mm -hmm. mobilizing right. because the, cause the consequence is death. Right. So, that I mean, that's something that we really have to consider. So it's frustrating we get a community forum the other day when, not, when we're given the opportunity to speak up and black men specifically don't take advantage of it to put our calls and our issues and our challenges as black people in Madison on on the or even on the table for for conversation and consideration because at the end of the day Madison is is having this whole united we stand united we are this is a sanctuary city for immigrants right you are safe here immigrants are black people safe UW black students are they safe because that anti that Nazi uh, that Nazi organization they've allowed to form are they safe? Am I safe? Are my children safe in Madison when they're arrested at a rate of 16 to 1 to their white counterpart? Is that safe? Is it safe for my children to attend public schools with police officers who are disproportionately harassing them and profiling them and, and, and adding them to the statistics of the school, the pipeline, the pipeline of school or whatever you want to call it? The prison. There you go. <laughs> the school to prison pipeline <laughs> and that whole idea of safe. Mm -hmm. And I guess... <laughs> I mean, part of me wants to say, you know, beware <laughs> when they say peace and safety. Mm -hmm. Because um, when you're talking about the status of black folks here in Madison, mm -hmm. Dane County in particular, we know that we are faring worse here than any other place in the country. In the country. And if you say mm -hmm. anywhere else in the country, then we might even suppose that we might be the worst in some places in the world, mm -hmm. especially when we it are comes the leading to nation. mass incarceration. Yes. We are leading globally. Yes. Yes. And so it's, it's sad to me because the question I want to ask you behind this is that, do you think women like Ella Baker and some of the women that I've already named, do you think they thought that we'd still be at this point at 2017, especially after we've had our first African-American president? I don't, I don't know. I think, I don't know. You know, I think um, I think when we look back, there are some things that we've 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 accomplished. Right. We've accomplished the ability to even have the opportunity to have a black president. Right. Right. But what we haven't done as black people and non-white uh, folks is we haven't unpacked what white supremacy is. We haven't unpacked white supremacy, patriarchal capitalism and what that does to our bodies and what it means, including patriarchy, sexism, misogyny. We haven't unpacked that. Right. Because mm -hmm. some of us are from uh, traditional backgrounds or conservative backgrounds. And we are afraid to admit that some of the stuff that we traditionally passed on are replications or imitations of white supremacy structures, which are deadly for our body, including mm -hmm. sexism and misogyny. So can we unpack what you mean when you say white supremacy? Because if you say white supremacy, most of us are thinking folks in hoods. Well, white supremacy is a structural um, type of understanding. It's what we're conditioning to accept. A good example would be the TV. 
You turn on TV, turn on any channel you want, 3, 7, 9, 8, 10, 27, 55, it don't matter. Mm -hmm. What you will see in most shows and most commercials are white people and specifically white women. And that sets the standard for uh, what we uh, what we see as normal and accepting, right? So white supremacy is really this notion that whiteness is the superior ide ideology and when I say whiteness, I mean white culture, the way mm -hmm. of being, the way of interacting. If you go to a white person's house for Thanksgiving, what you will notice is this sense of they're very quiet and meek. You know what I mean? Conversations over here. And how do I know? My grandmother's Norwegian, you know? So around in her house for Thanksgiving, we used to go early in the day because you couldn't make a lot of noise. You know, you just mm -hmm. sit there and you eat your food and you talk very politely. And then at night we'll have like the black side, right? Of Thanksgiving. And we laughing and we talking and the music's playing. We playing cards. And you we might are loud. Domino, and we are loud. And that, so, so the white standard is what my grandmother showed me, right? And for us black people being loud and, and interactive and, and talking crap, right? Because that's how we we um we we banter. That's how right. we engage. You know that is considered by white people as oh my god. They're so uh, uncivilized, right? So the white supremacy means that white culture sets the tone for what we accept as normal in our culture, and it's become cultural norm. So to be anything above or below or outside of that box, that social construct is seen. You are seen as an animal or less than or criminalized or socialized to, to you know, not to be acceptable, just like the black woman is seen as a reject or less than the white woman because we don't fit that social construct of whiteness. Mm. My goodness, that was a mouthful. <laughs> so, <laughs> and now we're going to listen into an interview by Angela Y. Davis, Dr. Davis. And this is this is my girl. I had the fortune of meeting her when she was here in Madison a few years ago. She and her sister, um, Fania Davis, um, just generous, wonderful people. And I would think if anybody had the reason to be standoffish Dr. Davis would be, but she was so gracious and so engaging. So here we go. Live in, in, in the black community all your life and walk out on the street every day seeing white policemen surrounding you. I, when I was living in Los Angeles, for instance, long before the situation in L.A. ever occurred, uh, I was constantly stopped. No, the, the, the police didn't know who I who I was, but I was a black woman. And I had had a natural, and and they I suppose thought that I might be a quote militant. And when you live under a situation like that constantly, um, uh, and then and then you ask me, you know, whether I approve of violence. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, whether I approve of guns. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs, bombs that were planted by racists. Uh, I remember it from, from the time I was very small. I remember the sounds of bombs exploding across the street, our house shaking. I remember my father having to have guns at his disposal at all times because of the fact that at any moment... Uh, uh, someone we, we might expect to be attacked. The man who was at that time in con complete control of the city government, his name was Bull Connor, uh, would often get on the radio and make statements like, uh, 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 niggas have moved into a white neighborhood, uh, we better expect some bloodshed tonight. And sure enough, there would be bloodshed. Uh, after the four young girls who were who lived very, who lived, one of them lived uh, next door to me. Um, I was very good friends with the sister of, of another one. My, my sister was very good friends with all three of them. My mother taught one of them in her class. My mother, in fact, when the bombing occurred, one of the mothers of, uh, one of the young girls called my mother and said, uh, can you take me down to the church to pick up, uh, Carol, I, you know, we heard about the bombing, and I, and I don't have my car. And they went down, and what did they find? They found limbs and heads strewn all over the place. And then after that, uh, in my neighborhood, all of the men organized themselves into an armed patrol. They had to take their guns and patrol our community every night because they did not want that to happen again. I mean, that's why when someone asked me about violence, uh, uh, I just uh, 
I just find it incredible. It, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through, what black people have experienced in this country since the time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. And that's yes. why yes. Dr. Yes. Angela yes. Davis is my girl. And I just want to pay um, honor to the four young girls who were killed in the bombing. Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair. And I think most people, because I did not know this, that Dr. Angela Davis grew up with these girls. Yes. They, it was her neighborhood. It was her, you know, maybe even her church. Mm-hmm. And it, once I found that out, it made me understand her fire and her passion yeah. a little bit more because that was part of her existence since she was a child. And her quote that I love is, um, I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things that I cannot accept. Mm-hmm. And so as a modern day activist, Brandy, what are some of the things that you can no longer accept? <laughs> oh, Lord, I just opened myself up. Oh, Lord. Um, there's a lot of things I can't accept. And that's why I am so raw with the things, my interpretation and analysis around black leadership and how we engage with these systems, you know, um, and I can't accept uh, mediocrity, right? I, I can't accept um, black men not including black women in this walk and not walking with us. I cannot accept my black children going to public schools and being undereducated or educated in a way that sets them up for failure, where in a way in which they're not included or in a way that they don't see themselves, whether it's in the curriculum or whether it's in the teachers that's standing right. before them. Right. I can't accept that all our social workers generally speaking, are white women who come into these spaces with all these um, biases and uh, white supremacy ideologies about us as people and about our children. So when you have a standard of white supremacy and a white culture and a way of uh, being, and they take these ideas into our homes, they judge us by these standards, not understanding that we don't live and exist in the same world. Now, let me interject there for a second. When I was Mm -hmm. doing social work, I had... um, a friend who was doing um, some work with uh, with the kids. I forget what they call it. Guardian at Lightham. Mm. Oh, yes. And she was talking to one of our county social workers. The county social worker had not met her in person, so she did not realize that she was a black woman. <laughs> she was just talking to her on the phone. Mm-hmm. And it was a situation where the mother was drawn out on crack, and the father wanted to take custody of the kids. And he was being met with resistance. Of course. And the social worker said to my friend, she says, you know, I'm trying to figure out what his ulterior motive is. She said, because, you know, African-American men don't take care of their don't children. Don't love their children, right? Now, the point of this, and most people don't understand, is that when I was a social worker, I would go out, I would meet the families, I would write court reports and things of that nature, and I would make recommendations mm-hmm. on what that family should do, what they needed to do. Mm-hmm. I would take it to the court, and I would tell you probably 12 times out of 10, all the judge would do was read my recommendations yep. into the court That's right. report, okay? Yep. And then that became what they legally had to abide by. Mm-hmm. So had that social worker, and she may have still done it, gone into court and recommended that those kids go to foster care instead of with this father, she never would have said it's because African-American men don't take care of their children. <laughs> yeah. She would have had the social work ease That's right. in the way she would have said it. And so the power that even just a social worker has mm-hmm. that is not culturally competent, mm-hmm. and I'm interrupt myself for a moment, because I do not believe in cultural competence. Mm-hmm. I, I want to be very clear with that. I think cultural competence is a construct that was created to justify well, not hiring black people and brown people <laughs> <laughs> to work. Because now we can say that I'm culturally competent, so I don't need anybody brown there. Well, I got my certification. Right. <laughs> N- not to mention the fact that most people mm-hmm. who are teaching cultural competence are white, <laughs> white, and many of them white males. Ooh. So so you have this situation where you think, mm-hmm. well, it's just a social worker. Hmm. But a social worker can make decisions yes. from a bad place yes. that can change the trajectory of a child's entire life. And they do. And they do. And they do. And they yep. do. Yep. The same yeah. is true for 
um, people in education, right? Right. And same is true for these officers that are placed in our school, right? Because when an officer makes a report on a child, ain't nobody, don't nobody care what the child has to say. What if the child was just walking down the hallway on their way to their class and they have a pass and the officer is known to harass and profile this child. And so he asks the child, where are you going? And her response is none of your business. So his response to that is, I'll show you, you flip it look, you know, mouth girl. And it doesn't matter if these officers placed in our schools are black or brown or Asian or any other non-white. You want to know why? Because racism and white supremacy is institutionalized. It's right. institutionalized it's in the it's systematic. It's the way they're trained to move and operate. And a lot of the folks that are placed in our schools have ego issues and they mad they there because they feel like they babysitting. Well, let me just say, and I want to say this probably three times. I have a brother who is a police officer. My I have a brother was, who is a police officer. Is, yep. I have a mm-hmm. brother right now who mm-hmm. is a police officer. I love a police officer. Mm-hmm. And I, you and know, look good in uniform. And they some do. of my favorite they people do. are police officers. <laughs> so I definitely, I support the police. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really concerned. And that's a whole nother conversation. Yes. Maybe I have you back for that okay. about police being in the schools, because yes. what ends up happening is just like you described normal, defiant behavior by teenagers mm-hmm. that anybody who's raised a teenager understands mm-hmm. or maybe who's been a teenager mm-hmm. understands if you're truthful about who you was right. <laughs> um, yes. has now become criminalized yep. because now you've said it to me and I'm a police officer and it comes on a whole another yep. situation. Oh, we got a caller coming in. Let's get Dan who wants to comment on Condoleezza Rice. Uh Hi, Dan. Um, yes, am I on the air already? You are on the air, Dan. Okay, great. Um, um, I don't want to take a lot of your time, but I did want to propose, um, just for your uh, commentary, uh, the name of um, one of my least favorite figures um, from uh, the history you're talking about. Yes. And that would be Condoleezza Rice. Oh, I thought there was going to be also, one of your favorites. Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> who also, but just I'm just bringing this up because she also lays a claim to having been born in Birmingham, to having been, you know, had personal experience with uh, that um, uh, 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 time period, and and having been classmates with the four girls who were who were murdered, um, right. but went in this completely different ideological and career direction, I, and has done a tremendous damage. And sometimes, you know, as a, a representative of uh, black women um, for conservatives. So I just want to oh, uh, okay. well, th- uh, get some criticism in there. That's well, great point, I- Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye. So, so um, that goes kind of back to our conversation yeah. about the faces of blackness, right? Right. And who we choose to engage in conversations with right. to represent our black communities and black people and and the system and people who are part of the system, whether it's city council or state level or specific organizations that are supposed to be repping for the most disenfranchised, the most marginalized, choose safe people, safe people that won't challenge white supremacy, patriarchal capitalism. They're going to go along with the go along and they're going to say, all I want to do, we should love each other and hold hands and kumbaya, but I can never kumbaya if my humanity continues to be rejected, dismissed, and like not even part of the conversation. You know, and and it's important also to realize that we have different voices in the conversation. Absolutely. And that we have different experiences in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you something about my beloved grandmama, and I love my grandmama, okay? <laughs> I'm named after her. That was my girl. But at the same time, when my grandmother would talk about stuff, mm-hmm. her grandfather was a slave, mm-hmm. okay? And I promise you that my grandmother used to tell the story about how good his master was to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my eyes roll in the back of my head because good and master, unless you're talking about Jesus, don't go together. It's not binary. You know, (laughs) but I think, again, she came from that time and that place and the way they viewed certain things. And she brought that up. So I think um, there are various voices in the conversation. I agree. And they should be. Mm -hmm. But they shouldn't be. But what happens is the conversation is dominated by one voice. Mm-hmm. And that one voice is usually black men who are in agreement with the system. 
who are complacent to the challenges we face in the system, which causes a hazard to our black bodies. And what people don't realize is this, our black bodies are, are being literally destroyed, whether it's physically, emotionally, or spiritually, when we perpetrate and align with these systems, we become part of torch barriers of white supremacy. I cannot believe we are almost at the end of the hour. How did that happen, girl? You know, I can talk, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, you had a list of folks, and I'll quickly say mine before we end so we just have that 10 list completed. Um, But you had a list of folks, and one of the people, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, Diane Nash, Bell Hooks, but one of the people you mentioned I did not know, and that is Dr. Frances Cress Wesley. Yes. She wrote, she's her. responsible for writing the, the book, The ISIS Paper, and it, it's a book um, that includes about 18 essays and her research around white supremacy, um, and it is amazing. Like, it's amazing. It breaks down racism in a way and explains racism not as an individual thing, but more so of a global system of being that we have this system of white supremacy that's that was um, created by 10% of the world's population for the purpose of dominating the other 90% of the globe. So it's not something that's just um, that's in America per se, like mm-hmm. this is happening across our entire globe and we can see it, right? We can see it where we bomb at, where we fight at, who we try to dominate in terms of their resources. It's all brown and black people. And it's who all we say can and can't come into the country. Exactly. And it's all done by white men in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. We saw Trump's cabinet, right? We saw the people in the room. There's barely any women. And um, that is in Trump. And that, that image is a perfect, manifestation and symbolic of white supremacy patriarchal capitalism so when white people are saying let's get back to what we used to be and let's get back to making american great again what they're saying is let's get back to um expansionists right good masters good masters and get these non-white folks under control because they're doing too much after they didn't put this black man as a president well you know and i'll just speak a little bit because i did see this image when the um there was something he signed so many things. I can't remember what he was signing, <laughs> but it was something about abortion that he signed and it was very telling. And I am, you know, I am pro-life. Okay. Um, but it was something that is, that was very telling with having all of these men sa- standing around him as he's signing this, mm-hmm. because my whole thing is that if you actually don't ab- Board a child, that means that one is born. That's right. And has to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. So could you say men sign some paper that says that if men make babies with a woman right. and she has a baby, mm-hmm. that she chooses to do that, that um, they must... These are the stipulations. Right. <laughs> that they must be responsible. <laughs> and more than just with a paycheck. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so, um, so that was very, very telling, very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, we are almost out of time. One of the things that I ask women who are on the show is, you know, in tune, in tune with some of the work that I'm doing with black women around healing is what is one word did you have for healing? Could you quickly share one word with us? Um, well, it's a hashtag. I made it into one word and that is black women. You are enough. All right. So I want to thank you, Brandy Grayson, for joining us today. Thank you all for listening in. Thank you to our callers. And we look forward to talking with you next time. That was a good conversation. And look, we mean this thing. We are not playing. We are committed to defending black girls. And look, we want you to get involved. Please visit lalata.org to explore the work that we are doing to defend black girls to be safe wherever they are. And look, while you're there, please sign up for our mailing list so that you will not miss one single fearless conversation. <laughs>